Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 287 Information and Contemplation. We're joined this week by Professor David Levy to discuss his experience working with and teaching about information and contemplation, a course he designed to explore mindfulness in the digital age. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined today over Skype with David M. Levy. David, great to have you on the program, and thanks for taking uh, time out of your day to, to join the Buddhist Geeks. Thanks. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, it's really exciting. Um, I, I saw an article recently that was describing some of the work that you're doing, and I want, before I jump into that, to just say a little bit about your background, um, and then we'll sort of jump into an exploration of uh, working with technology and contemplation um, in the modern world. And... I should start by saying that you're now a professor at the Information School at the University of Washington. Uh, you've been there since 2001. They, uh, I guess, call it the iSchool. Uh, so you had no problems with Apple, I guess, uh, and the iSchool, huh? Well, it's a, it's a running joke, but no, we haven't had any problems. You're right. <laughs> okay, great. And then before that, uh, before you were professor there, um, for about 15 years from the mid-80s to the late 90s, you're working at Xerox Park, which is probably one of the most famous kind of research facilities in terms of technology that I, that I, that at least that I'm aware of. Um, and you were there working on, uh, in particular, the transition from paper to digital media. That's right. I mean, I would also add that I was there in the 70s as well when I was a graduate student at Stanford. So I was a research intern um, at Park in the 70s when the work that was being done there was what made Park most famous, which was the, the development of the network personal computer. And then after I finished my PhD, I left and went on to do other things. And then I came back again in the mid-80s until the end of 1999. Okay. So, so you really were immersed in that, in that sort of world and that culture for quite a while? For basically over the course of three decades. Was, was that a pretty incredible place to be? I mean, it seems like there's so much innovation and so much new stuff coming out of that culture. It was an extraordinary place to be. I feel very privileged to have um, been able to spend so much time, not just because of the the inventions um, that came out of it, but, but it was a real culture of collaboration and innovation. Um, it was a place where I got to work with um, anthropologists and psychologists and philosophers, um, it was a real crossroads, a real destination place where all kinds of interesting people were coming through and staying for periods of time. It was a very rich and exciting and provocative place to be. And, and what were you studying uh, at Stanford in the, in the 70s? Um, I was doing a PhD in computer science and my area of specialization was artificial intelligence. Okay, cool. What was the state of AI back, back then? Well, it's interesting. You know, AI was still, I would say, in its relatively early phase then. Um, when I arrived at Stanford in 1972, it was a, a book had been written just that year by um, uh, Bert Dreyfus, a philosopher at Berkeley, called What Computers Can't Do, 
which was a very strong attack and critique of, of AI, which was suggesting that AI's methods and its limited understanding of the depth of, of humanity and human embodied intelligence was was going to prevent AI from, from making any real progress. And I was actually, even in those days, in my early 20s, I was fascinated by the critiques, the criticisms, as well as by what AI was trying to do. But that was not very popular um, in those days to be interested in both sides. And now, so you've, you've got the sort of life here as a technologist. You know, you went to Stanford, you spent time as an intern at Xerox Park, you ended up working there a long time. And then on the other side of the street, which maybe you don't see them as two sides of the street, but all the same, you also have a long-standing practice and history with uh, meditation practice. And I think you've done some practice as well in the Buddhist tradition. Is that, is that correct? That's true. Um, actually, most of my extended sitting has been in the Buddhist world, both Vipassana and Zen, although I, I am not a Buddhist. But my, my, my first engagement with meditation and contemplative practices goes back to the early 70s when I was at Stanford and when a, uh, a fellow graduate student took me to a Zendo. Uh, you know, the Bay, San Francisco Bay Area was and still is a hotbed of this. Um, yes. Suzuki Roshi had, I think, died not long before, but uh, this friend took me to two different Zendos in the Bay Area uh, to, to sit and just sort of to check it out. And I hated it. I, uh, I still very vividly remember, you know, going in, sitting on a black cushion, trying to fold my legs under me, and just my mind going wild, my body being all achy and itchy. And after a couple of sessions of this, probably spread out over the course of six or eight months, I just said, forget it. You know, this is not something I ever want to do. Mm -hmm. um, so that was my beginning. And I say that sometimes to students because, you know, it doesn't always take. It doesn't always, you know, you have to find the right time in your life when it's going to be meaningful. Uh, the truth is that the more, the more immediate door for me into meditation and contemplation was through calligraphy. Also in the 70s, in the mid and late 70s, I started studying calligraphy in Palo Alto in San Francisco. And there was something about the way, you know, the use of the pen and the movement and the materials that was so different than my sort of narrowly intellectual and, bra and brainy life. And I, I loved it. And when I um, finished my PhD, I decided that I didn't want to go ahead forward with uh, techie stuff, with computer stuff mainly. I moved to London and I ended up spending two years studying calligraphy and bookbinding um, and actually got a degree in calligraphy and bookbinding. And when I, when I reflect back all these years later, you know, 30 years later, I realized that the time that I spent, the quiet meditative time I spent with a pen or a quill, um, really kind of concentrating and, and feeling movement and all of that, that was the beginning for me, of beginning to learn something about the ways that mind and body could be integrated. Um, but at the time, I didn't have any language for it. I mean, I, it wasn't, I'm doing calligraphy because it's like meditation, or I'm doing calligraphy because it's contemplative. I was just doing it because somehow or other, it felt really good, and it was drawing me on. And I knew that in some way, it was balancing out some of the stresses and strains and the, the narrow intellectualization that I had been living through. Hmm, that makes a lot of sense. And sort of switching gears a bit, I wanted to explore with you this really interesting intersection point that obviously you've been exploring 
both professionally and personally for a long time. And that is around this coming together of the information age and the age-old practices of contemplation. And you're teaching a course uh, right now at the information school called Information and Contemplation, uh, where you're exploring this very coming together, this very intersection. And I was wondering if you could share a bit about how the course is structured and some of the main things that you explore in it. And also, whether is this an undergrad or a grad course, or and how does it work in terms of the uh, the actual system? You, you know, when I think about the intersection of uh, my high-tech life and my life as a technologist combined with my contemplative meditative life, I actually go back uh, about 20 years to a point when I first ha- I had my first aha, which is, oh, wait a minute, all this mindfulness stuff and all this technology stuff has, a ver- has some very interesting uh, points of contact, and I think I want to explore those. It was in it was the early '90s. I was I was a researcher at Xerox Park. I had a mindfulness practice. I had a basic daily daily sitting practice at that point, and I became aware that when I sat in the morning, um, I tended you know more or less to get quieter and more connected. But on the other hand, it seemed that when I went out into the world, and I know that's a funny distinction to make anyway, but when I, when I went on with my day, it seemed that more and more the ways I was using my technologies, in those days it was cell phones, it was uh, um, you know, email and so on, that it seemed in some ways that those technologies were, uh, and the acceleration of life were pushing me away from being more centered and more mindful and, and quieter. And I... I first posed a question to myself, which was, um, is it possible that these technologies, which are being sold as tools to connect us, are also disconnecting us? And I wrote my first little essay, uh, I think I published it in 1995, called I'm Not Here Right Now to Take Your Call, uh, subtitled Technology and the Politics of Absence. And that's where I first talked about the the questions and, and confusions I had about whether technology was um, connecting us um, to one another and to ourselves or pulling us apart. So that's where it all really began. And when I moved from Park uh, to Seattle to take my position at, at the information school, those were the kinds of questions I really wanted to um, explore. And then in 2006, I think it was, was when I got this wonderful opportunity to create a course called Information and Contemplation. And it's a course that, that I have offered, I continue to offer. It's a course that I open up to uh, students at all levels. So I, I, it's open to undergraduates, to master's students, and to PhD students. The only requirement, there are no, um, uh, there are no, no prerequisites for it, but the only requirement is that students have to meet with me beforehand, um, have a conversation with me, um, so that we can make sure that that it's a good fit for them. So that because we're going to do stuff that's out of the box, and I and I want to make sure that students are up for it. So, what the, what I basically do in the course, um, and what I've been doing since the beginning is one, I've been giving students instruction in various contemplative or meditative practices. Uh, the core practice, which we pretty much practice at the beginning of every class, is just um, silent sitting, following the breath. Um, and as the quarter goes on, 
we, I bring in walking meditation. We do a kind of John Kabat-Zinn-like um, body scan. Uh, we try forms of contemplative reading and writing. M- many people around the country who are bringing contemplative practices into the classroom are, are doing exactly these kinds of um, exercises. Uh, what's, I think, unusual and pretty original in my course is that I have created um, a whole series of exercises that ask students to become more mindful of the ways they're actually using the technologies. So we, we establish a baseline understanding uh, th- through the basic sitting practice and, 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 and other meditation practices of what it is to experience in the present moment um, sensation, perception, thinking, emotion, um, and so on, and also to be able to ask questions like, what is the quality of my attention at this very moment? Um, so we've established, we established in the first week or two that you can really look at yourself in the present moment and you can kind of do that, that kind of self-assessment. And then the very first exercise that I give students to do, I call the email observation exercise. And I ask them over the course of a week to spend 15 or 20 minutes a day uh, not only doing email, but observing what's happening in their mind and body as they do it and keeping a log. So I say, while you're doing email, check in on your breath, on your breathing. Is it shallow? Is it deep? Is it changing? What's happening to your posture? Uh, do you lean in more as you, go, as you continue on with email? Do you lean out? at certain points, um, emotionally what's happening when you see your inbox, when you respond to email. And so they end up writing um, a, a series of log entries over the course of a week. Um, and then at the end of that week, um, I ask them to look back over their log and to write a two or three page essay describing what they've learned. Basically, what I say to them is, um, your first exercise is to become more mindful of what is actually happening in the present moment when you're doing email, and then to write a reflection on that. And that's, the, that's when the course really gets going, because um, s- students come back, they share their essays with me and with the rest of the class, and we end up having um, a very, very interesting um, conversation about the various things that they've, they've been learning by, just by being mindful of how they do email. That's very cool. Are these practices that you were sort of trying out yourself beforehand, or is this something, is this something that you're sort of developing as you went with the course? Well, it's a mixture uh, of that. Um, of course, you know, at, g- given my, my own mindfulness practice, you know, over the years, I'm continually looking at what it feels like to be online for myself. So the, 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 the very first exercise I ever created, the one I just described, the email observation exercise, very much came out of um, my own self-reflection and self-observation. But what has happened over time is that students have said, well, that was a really great exercise and we want more. So I, I started... Um, reflecting um, over, uh, you know, as time went by and, and have developed and tested more exercises, some of which really have come out of my interactions with the students. So, so, so let me give you an example of what I mean by that. Uh, a year ago, uh, one of the students in the class, a master's student, who had done the email observation exercise, 
said, and, and by the way, one of the things I love about what students do with this is they tend to be very honest. And I, I, it's, it's important for me uh, and for the class that I create a trusting atmosphere in which it's safe for people to say whatever it is they're learning and to feel that they're not going to be judged. So this one student said uh, in her written reflection, wow, I can't believe how mindless I am when I'm doing email. And she listed all the things that are, that are happening when she's doing email. She's thinking about the grocery shopping she has to do. She's thinking about her, the recent breakup with her partner, you know, all this stuff. And she said, wow, I really never realized that when I'm doing email, my mind is bouncing all over the place. So, so and, uh, and, and, you know, many people um, will notice that. But then she went on to say, gee, I could probably use email as a meditation. And um, the basic idea being, um, you know, just as we're, we, we've been learning in the class to follow the breath and, and when the mind goes somewhere else to bring it back to the breath, she was noticing that maybe email itself could be the object that she was continually bringing her attention back to. Now, of course, that's not a, that was not a new, a new idea for me, right? Um, but I loved the fact that she had discovered it herself. And so I created an exercise that was more or less along the lines of what she was, she was saying. All right, let's all see if we can spend 15 minutes, instead of following the breath, following the email. And when we notice that our mind is being or, uh, distracted by the desire to go to Facebook or um, uh, another email message coming in, or whatever it is, or the cell phone ringing, let's just notice that, that distraction and bring our mind back uh, to email. And so out of the initial observation exercise to do with email came an exercise that was aimed at actually building concentration. Yeah, no, I, I love that. That's something I, that I also sort of discovered at a certain point playing around with email, and I, I wish I had talked to you beforehand to shortcut this process or done your class even better. One thing I really love about that example is that it, it sort of undercuts this idea, which I think some people have, even advanced practitioners have, that somehow the the subject of meditation is somehow special, like the breath, there's something special about the breath, and that somehow other objects like email couldn't couldn't be use to develop concentration. Um, so I, I love that you're taking what we're having to do anyway and turning it into an object to, to work with. And, you know, I want, I want to give a certain amount of credit to somebody who I, I worked with and who sadly died um, uh, about two years ago, a, a Zen teacher named uh, Darlene Cohen. I, uh, Darlene Cohen was part of the San Francisco Zen Center world for many, many years and I discovered her by discovering a little book of hers called The One Who Is Not Busy. And um, it, the book she wrote, um, which, is, which is in print, comes out of workshops that she was offering in San Francisco in Silicon Valley, partly inspired by people coming to her from the tech world saying, you know, I, I don't know how to, I'm gonna, how to keep my life together in the middle of all this stress and all this work I'm doing. And so she... She developed a, a course that was aimed at helping people to be more mindful in the workplace. And although she didn't 
so much specialize in talking about the technology, it was clear when I read her book that what she was saying was directly applicable um, to email and to multitasking and all of that. And so I contacted Darlene and um, told her who I was. And, and I, in fact, I said to her, I think there's an interesting experiment that could be done with this. And Darlene was, was actually very excited about this. It turns out that she had a master's degree from many, many years ago in, in neuroscience and ha- had actually worked in the um, Harvard laboratories of a very famous um, psychologist, B.F. Skinner, and be- before she went moved to California and discovered Zen and, and all of that. And so the idea that there might, we might actually be able to do some experimental validation of, of these uh, things that of her mindfulness training aimed at the workplace and aimed at technology was a very exciting idea for her. So it was, I, I really want to credit Darlene for, um, I, I discovered her and her work about five years ago for really um, helping me to focus some of this even more clearly and to realize that, you know, indeed that doing Facebook or, um, or doing email or texting or any of those things was, was just as valid a, a place to bring one's uh, mindfulness. Mm. You know, and this, t- this ties in with this whole kind of conversation about multitasking. And, you know, multitasking, I guess, gets a lot of play uh, when we talk about this sort of issue with technology because we are being pulled. I mean, I'm looking right now and I have two screens in front of me and a third, you know, sitting behind me. Um, and we are being constantly... Uh, interrupted by various sort of uh, technological signals, and you know, you you've done some uh, and been part of some research that's sort of similar to what you're describing, where you've actually kind of looked at the effect of uh, mindful awareness practice and multitasking. Um, I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that, since it sounds like you're s- sort of inspired by this uh, uh, Zen teacher. In San Francisco, that's cool. Well, yes. Yeah, so so um, I and some colleagues uh, actually created a, a an experiment that was meant to look at the effects of meditation on multitasking. This was work that was funded by the National Science Foundation. And the colleagues who were involved in this were uh, an, um, a colleague of mine at the iSchool, um, Jake Wobruck, who is a human-computer interaction uh, specialist, and um, Al Kasniak who is a, um, a neuropsychologist at the University of Arizona. And Al is also a very serious Zen student and, in, and now um, a Zen teacher himself um, in Tucson. So the three of us and a, and a PhD student, Marilyn Ostergren, with funding from NSF, decided to put together an, an experiment where we trained uh, human resource managers in Seattle and San Francisco in either mindfulness meditation or in relaxation, body relaxation techniques, or we ha- also had a, full, a, a control group that received no training. So for eight weeks, uh, once a week for two hours, uh, you either got two hours of mindfulness meditation, and, and by the way, it was Darlene Cohen, the Zen teacher, uh, who did the training in San Francisco, and her, uh, a senior student of hers who did the mindfulness training in Seattle. So you were either getting mindfulness meditation training two hours a week, 
you were getting relaxation training two hours a week, or in the control group, you were getting um, no training at all. And both before and after the eight-week training, we, we brought uh, people into an office setting with a laptop, with a phone, um, and we gave them a very intensive um, lifelike multitasking test. Um, in fact, the people, the HR managers who took the test basically said, yeah, this is just like my regular um, life. We, we told them that they had to schedule a meeting, they had to write a memo, um, and various other things. And oh, by the way, a lot of the information would be coming in by email and instant messaging, and there would be phone calls and there would be knocks on the door. So we, we gave them a series of office tasks to do and continually interrupted them. Um, sometimes the interruptions were with information they absolutely needed to get their tasks done, and sometimes they were really distractions, right? And then we instrumented all of this, and we measured their success at, at um, figuring out when the meeting should be, what the, what, the, what the room, the conference room should be, writing a memo, and so on. And we, we gave them this intensive multitasking test both before and after the eight-week period. And then, of course, we did all the, uh, the data collection and the statistical analysis and, and found a few very interesting trends. First, um, everybody found the multitasking test to be stressful. You know, so, so that after you took the multitasking test, you were more stressed out than, than before. There was no way to avoid that because it was stressful. Um, however... Only the meditators reduced the amount of stress that they felt in the second multitasking test. So they still were more stressed out than when they began the test, but the amount that they were more stressed out was smaller than, than the first time around. Whereas those who got relaxation training and those who got no training showed no change. Um, the meditators and the relaxers actually showed improved memory after training for what they had been doing. So, so at the end of each training, we asked them a series of questions like, who was it who sent you the email message that said blah, blah, blah? And um, it turned out that both those, the people in the relaxation training as well as in the um, meditation training improved their um, memory. And then finally, the, the third result was that only the meditators – reduced the, the number of times they switched tasks. Now, we didn't, we didn't train them to do that. Uh, we didn't say this is part of, you know, a part of the eight-week training. Um, but my sense is that as they, because they became more mindful, they were able at times to notice potential distractors and not necessarily go to them if they weren't relevant to their current task. And I think, I think that's one of the most interesting results in the end that, that to, to look at. And it's also something that I've been bringing into my teaching, into my classroom teaching as well. Because if you think about what we're doing when we're sitting, when we're doing a basic mindfulness um, sitting practice, is that we're trying to stay focused on, on, on uh, well, uh, at least for one version of, uh, of the practice, let's say. We're trying to stay focused on an object like the breath. Um, we do notice when distractors come along, um, like noises outside or itches or something. Um, but then we, we, we are potentially able to, to see the nature of that momentary distraction and make a decision to come back. So I think, 
and and by the way, I know that this was part of what Darlene thought was was valuable about um, mindfulness training. If you think about what we're doing when we're multitasking, which is a very valuable and I think an, an important activity, it's just part of human life. It, it didn't get invented. Um, by, by, by our use of digital technologies. We're continually making decisions at every moment um, throughout our day about whether to stay with our current task or whether to switch to something else. And so as our, mi- our mindfulness becomes stronger, we have the potential to notice, for example, something else going on on the, str- on the, on the screen or a ringing telephone or suddenly remember that um, we've, we forgot to put something on our to-do list. Or we're also potentially able to notice strong emotions come up um, while we're um, texting or w- while we're doing email, to notice those things and then to make a judgment, an assessment about whether or not the thing that, that, is, that is calling our attention is something we want to switch to or not. And I think right there you have a whole program for training people to be more mindful and to discover how to be more effective in their multitasking and also at times to decide that maybe multitasking isn't the right thing to do. What's funny is even hanging out with a lot of people that are meditators, you know, who have learned a lot of these skills, um, what I've noticed is that those skills don't always translate into these other contexts and that it does take some uh, intentional effort to do so, um, that sitting on a cushion, you know, someone can get very good at sitting on a cushion or sitting in a chair and being able to return their attention back to the breath. But then when it comes to email, um, <laughs> all those skills and capacities, maybe they translate a little like over with the, the research you mentioned. But uh, what I've noticed is that d- that doesn't seem to be automatic or guaranteed that it's going to translate over 100%. You know, I think you're absolutely right. I, I And I, I think transfer is not automatic. I mean, maybe for somebody who is um, very, very far um, in their practice. But for most of us, let's face it, yeah, um, uh, the tools that we have now and the habits that we've developed around these tools, are uh, um, the habits are very powerful, right? Um, I'm convinced that we, you know, and I think you, you, you feel the same way, that we can absolutely train our attention train our bodies to be more mindful when we're, you know, on Facebook, when we're texting, when we're doing email, when we're multitasking. But the habit, the, the habit energies are just so incredibly strong that it's, a, it's, actually, a, it's actually a great area for us to use um, as, a, as another domain of our, of our, of our practice. Nice, nice. One one last thing I wanted to explore with you in terms of practice is um, something that you practice, uh, which I've heard called at w- one point uh, a digital Sabbath. And obviously, Sabbath is part of the Jewish tradition, but I, I know there's sort of a, a movement of folks who are exploring not just in taking time off, you know, for a day each week, um, but also taking time off from technology completely. Uh, I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that practice and and if it's something that you recommend to your students and to other people and, and sort of what that practice, what kind of effects um, people experience from that sort of uh, training and sort of disconnecting or, or pulling the plug out from, from, from one's use of technology. Well, I'll start by saying what, what I do and what I've learned, and then I'll tell you something about my, what I do with students. 
So, um, you know, as a, as a practicing Jew, uh, um, I have had a Sabbath practice for maybe 20 years. I mean, I, I'm not a, something like that, more than 15, probably less than 25, but a good number of years. And um, while the actual details of it have to some extent varied over these years, depending on a variety of factors that I don't need to go into now, basically, in addition to not working, you know, to, to, to Friday night to Saturday night being a time when I am not doing what I traditionally think of as my work, I'm also not online. And that's just something that I have, um, that's how I have lived um, for more, more than 15, maybe 20 years, which is that I'm from, for 24, 25 hours a day, um, I don't touch my, you know, my, my computer or, or, or any of that. And it's, it's just something that I, um, that I do, right? So it's, it's not something that I think of as remarkable um, or special. Um, uh, it's true that in, actually in the earlier years, uh, uh, especially around email, that uh, there was, a, you know, I have a running joke with my wife that as soon as, uh, the, you know, Sabbath was over, I'd run upstairs to check my email because it's like, oh, my God, I got to see what happened since I was you know, last online. But I don't feel that way so much anymore. And it, it's just kind of, it's just part of the rhythm of my life. Um, what I do with students in, is I explore the notion of Sabbath, but I think a really important point about what I do in all of these explorations with students is I always do it, I always aim to do it in a non-judgmental way. I'm not trying to convince anybody to do anything. Uh, And I'm not assuming that I have, that whatever works for me is going to work for anybody else. And I think it's really important today in the middle of all of our arguments, you know, is Google making us stupid? You know, what, what is all this doing to us? That we not assume that, that one answer or one mode of practice is, is going to work for everybody. So when I talk about Sabbath time, by, by the way, generally, I think I don't, I don't tell students, at least not in the beginning, that I, that I have a Sabbath practice. Um, but we talk about the idea that one could be unplugged for a regular period of time. It could be an hour a day. You know, one could decide to, to, um, on some sort of rhythm um, of disconnection. In fact, one of the exercises that I do in the course is I ask students to unplug from one or more of their digital activities or devices for at least 24 hours. I let them decide which ones they're going to let go of, and I just make the request that they not make it so easy on themselves that there's that there's nothing there's no challenge there. You know, if you're going to, if you I don't know, if you never make phone calls anymore. Um, and then you say, well, all right, for 24 hours, I'm not going to make phone calls. Well, that's, that's no fun. So students will pick at least one practice. It, it could be Facebook. It could be email. It could be texting. Um, or some of them have, will actually go um, offline completely for 24 hours. So I have them experiment with that and, and write about it. And, um, and we talk about what it could mean for them to incorporate a practice like this into their life, again, without any assumption that there's a right answer for anybody but them, or even that if they try something, that they have to stick with it, right? Really, really keep it in the realm of let's be kind to ourselves, let's be non-judgmental, but let's see if we can learn something. And um, it's the last exercise I do in, in the class after we've done 
looked at email, um, observation, and meditation, after we've looked at multitasking, we finally look at this. And I'm surprised that, that people still learn more from unplugging. Um, they've, they've done a number of other exercises already, and they still find that, that they begin to see ways in which they're feeling hooked into the technologies in ways that they don't really want to be or that they don't find healthy. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.